You're listening to the Water in Real Life podcast, the podcast for people who want to become better leaders by becoming better communicators. Why? Because those who tell the stories rule the world. We're your hosts, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. So without further ado, let's get to the show. We are so excited to be here yet again with Manny Teodoro. Thanks for joining us, Manny. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are y'all doing? doing? Great. And if you didn't already know who Manny is, he is a social scientist of water and sewer utilities, management, politics, regulatory implementation, finance, affordability, and environmental justice. Just, I feel like a few of the things that you dabble in and give us all the research and and inspiration that we need. Um, And you follow him on Twitter right now. Get your phones out and follow him at at MPTeodoro. And check him out because he's always dropping some awesome blogs that are mm-hmm. full of great information. So, yes. Manny, thanks for being here again. <laughs> well, that is very kind. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you. Yeah, Twitter's fun. Uh, great right. way to connect with people. Um, Twitter gets a bad reputation because there's a lot of silly people on Twitter. But it's a terrific place to connect with other folks in the water sector. And, and that's Same. what i It's pretty much the only way I feel like we've been connected for the past 18 months. I know, right? Yes, yes. It's been like, yes, hallelujah. I'm much. so grateful that the water industry has Twitter. Yes. <laughs> um, so I've mentioned that Manny's been on before. The last time that we spoke was until this past UMC was the last time that I the think last all UMC. of us were. Oh my yeah, gosh. the last UMC. Aww. And um, we got to speak to Manny in real life. Mm-hmm. And this time we are we are virtual, but just as just as well. And so as a seasoned Water in Real Life podcast guest, <laughs> you've already been asked our standard opening question. Did you choose water or did water choose you? So I'm not going to start off with that. I'm going to kick off with something a little different because as I was doing some more research on you and checking out your website, I saw that front and center on your website, you lead with this quote that says, science informs sound decision-making, storytelling inspires change, Science, not storytelling, should drive water should drive policy and management in the water sector, but we need both to ensure safe and affordable water. Mm. Now that is music to our ears, mm. and we mm. say this all the time, but I want to hear why making that statement right out of the gate was important to you. Yeah. You know, I think it it derives from what I see as a split personality <laughs> in in water sector management. Um, you know, I've, been, I've been working in the water sector for almost 25 years now. It's kind of astounding when I, when I say it out loud in words <laughs> like that. Um, but one of the weird things about water managers, and I, and I love water managers, really. We all do. Truly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's this weird management culture in water. Executives in the water sector tend to have a very scientific mindset when they're making decisions about resource management or water quality, technological innovation, um, new construction materials, whatever. They're very hard-headed and analytical thinkers when it comes to the physics and chemistry mm-hmm. of this business. But then, so that's one side of the personality. The other side of the personality is a little surprising then because then many of the same people will make their policy and management decisions intuitively. These very smart, 
hardworking executives who demand careful analysis of water quality are strangely comfortable relying on anecdotes when it comes to making decisions about stuff like affordability or public communication or personnel mm-hmm. management or political processes. They just kind of go go with their gut or they sort of ask their friend Bob what he does yes. or or you know like like what do what do the communities around right. us do? Mm-hmm. What they do must yeah. be good. Right. So executives will sort of emulate what their peers do instead of relying on the same kind of rigorous analytical techniques that they would apply in the technical side of their work. So that that ends up being educated guesses. So that comes to my work. A a big part of my work is just trying to bring uh, more rigorous methodology and science to inform that sound decision-making. But the reason you see stories are stories motivate, right? Stories uh, resonate with people. Uh, and that's why folks will will make those decisions by intuition. That's why folks will make those decisions based on what their friend Bob down the road did, because Bob tells a good story. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. that's great. And so stories really, really motivate people. The trouble is that that's the power of stories. And, and that's, that's, that's also the trouble with stories, right? That's, that's the great thing about stories. And it's the trouble with stories. Storytelling is powerful, but stories are sometimes mm-hmm. wrong. So we need to keep the horse before yeah. the cart, uh, right? Let's, let's let the science guide our decisions, but then let's use stories to motivate change. Um, our experiences tell us that the world is flat. Our experiences tell us that invisible microbes can't yeah. hurt us. We needed science to show us that, no, no, the world isn't flat. No, those tiny microbes that you can't see, mm-hmm. they can hurt you. Uh, and, and we can then use stories to motivate change, but let's make sure that the stories are true because stories can also be very destructive. So let's, let's, uh, that, that's the, the science and the storytelling all together. And that's, that's a big part of what I try to do in my public facing world is tell stories mm-hmm. with data in ways that will lead to good mm-hmm. decisions. Love it. And as a professor, you have to be able to make that data compelling for your students too. So I imagine story comes in handy with your, uh, with your students as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, but regression tables don't inspire, <laughs> but, but yeah. stories do. Um, and so you, that's why you, why you still, you do need both. Nice. Well, if y'all could see me, I just dropped my mic because Manny just dropped it for me. So I appreciate <laughs> that. I really, I really loved seeing that, uh, front and center and seeing people outside of us. Every time I, I see that, that gets me really excited, but I just wanted to let everyone listening right now know that you're about to go on a journey with us. And I basically dove into several of Manny's, um, papers, articles, Mm -hmm. research that he shared or that we had talked about before. And I really, truly just want to have a whole episode for every single paper. I think that you write, but I know definitely for the three that I, for the three that I, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I didn't want to over overwhelm him with all that. And so I took the overarching themes that I saw in each of these and kind of thread them into this dialogue that I would like to have, because it was great to have the person who did the work here mm-hmm. to ask all these questions from what I, what I felt, but just so everyone here, everyone listening knows there was, um, an article about citizen based brand equity. There was an article about framing 
framing issues or messaging, whichever the way that you message. And then there was one on class and race uh, and kind of the in, the impacts of that on um, the Clean Water Act compliance. And so, oh, but I wove them all together and I'm just, I'm so excited. And so I we're going to see how this goes. Yeah, and Mandy I, said it's a Mandy said it's a smorgasbord of papers or comments or questions. So good luck, yeah. y'all. Buckle up. <laughs> hey, that's how we that's yeah. how we roll. So what I'm saying is is that we're probably going to be talking about this more and more that you put out there. So just yes, as Ariane said, okay. buckle up. But we talk about things through the when we're trying to simplify communication in a way that can be easily deployed because we're trying to make it something that doesn't feel overbearing or overwhelming. We talk about it through the ABCs because, mm-hmm. you know, we're in water and we need our own acronym. So that's assessment, branding, content, strategy. Those are our ABCs of water comps. That's how we approach everything. Um, and so it made natural sense for me to begin with not assessment, but branding because uh, <laughs> we don't do them. In- I'm sorry, it's assessment. Branding and, and strategy, content. strategy, yes, mm-hmm. and strategy, yeah, okay. And we always have people start with branding because that's your story, and you have to have your story straight before you can hope to build messaging and strategy around that. If everyone is confused about who they are, their mission, their values, where they're coming from, then it's going to be pretty hard for you to create a, a whole strategy around what it is you're going to say. So that's why the the paper on citizen-based brand equity, a model and experimental evaluation, that's why I wanted to lead with there because I just, this paper stirred me all. (laughs) You don't even know. We could probably, like I said, we could do a whole episode on this one topic. So I'm going to try and contain myself. But one of my favorite parts about it was uh, when you did a analogy, metaphor, don't know the right term right now, but about cell phones. And so I, I saw it was, it was amazing. And I'm going to use this. I'm going to give you attribution, but I'm going to cite this all the time now because it made so much sense, but I'm going to read an excerpt from the paper. So y'all can hear it too. Okay. So the paper said critically, a citizen need not have any actual knowledge about an agency, its operations or the policies that it is supposed to implement in order for him to perceive the agency's brand favorably or unfavorably. A consumer does not need to contemplate the relative technical merits of operating systems to have a preference for Android or iPhone when shopping for a mobile phone. So in this model, the brand itself evokes emotions and or provides informational cues to citizens, however limited, incomplete, erroneous, or even deceptive. Just as a commercial product's brand image may differ from the product's reality, so may a public agency's. Every agency has a brand insofar as it is perceived at all by the public, whether or not it is actively engaged in branding. There's so many things just to unpack in that sentence, but so good. Yes. I don't need to know how the operating operating system works for me to know which I prefer. So I've got, I've got questions from there, but can you kind of unpack the why behind the branding paper, which I'm calling it now. Sure. Yeah. You know, branding as, as you and all of our listeners can probably easily understand. Branding is mm-hmm. an important thing in the corporate world. Right? The concept of brand equity is 
got a is longstanding in the business economics literature. Brand equity is basically the value of a brand itself. So if I, if I sell if I sell bread, okay, there's certain value to my bread factory, my bakery. Um, I have certain value that's brought to my business by my employees, and I have a certain value associated with the recipe. But that's all about the bread itself. My bread, it however, might have a brand value independent of the bread itself. So if it's Manny's bread and people really love Manny's bread, then I can sell the brand Manny's to another company for some independent value apart from the bakery, apart from the recipe, apart from the bakers. The brand Manny has some value mm-hmm. in itself. Now, if people really hate Manny, then then that we would call that negative brand equity. People actually dislike the bread because it comes from me. Or maybe they like the bread because mm-hmm. it comes from me. But the point is that the brand itself has value to people. And that value is tremendously important to businesses. It's the source of profits. It's where it's where money comes from and where, where revenue for your mm-hmm. business comes from. So very clear application to business world. Now, what does it mean for water, though, right? Where's, these are natural right. monopolies. Why, why does branding matter for water? Well, it, it matters because... Because it's not consumer brand equity, it's citizen mm. brand equity. These are organizations that rely upon citizen support for things like rate increases or bond approvals or other kinds of resources that they need. And so those, these organizations, whether they're public sector or for that matter, even if they're investor owned and they, they need support from a, a regulator, their public facing reputation matters. That brand matters. And whether or not you invest in the brand, if people are aware that you exist, you've got a brand, you've got a reputation. That could be positive or it could be negative, but, but it's there. And uh, if, if you spend the time looking and, and trying to measure it, you'll find how, how much it's there and, and whether it's, it's positive or negative. That, that's really what motivated us. We really wanted, wondered, I should mention, my co-author on, on that study is a fellow named Sung Ho An who's now a professor at the University of Arizona. What we were interested in at that time is whether the public would support different public policies more if if those policies were associated with a particular public agency. And it turns out the answer is usually yes, but Mm -hmm. not always. Uh, So all of you can... I'm going to have all of these articles linked in in the show notes, and you can use this as... Uh, as a counterpoint to the one resident who shows up and says, why is the utility spending money on branding and marketing? And you can use this for talking points because it's not, we, the branding, in my opinion, the branding in our sector is actually more important to me than to your point, talking about in business, it's, it's really financially important, the value of it and what you can sell it for and what it's worth in that way. But for me, branding in our sector is really a mechanism of public trust. And if you're not investing in that, then you're not in a way investing in that perception or that trust that people have with you and your organization and you're treating their water. Absolutely. That seems, um, that seems pretty important. Uh, So I had something that I thought about, and you mentioned this as well, and this may not even be something that you thought about or covered while doing this, but it came to my mind. You mentioned branding as monopoly. 
or branding mm-hmm. around why are we branding for a, a company that's a monopoly? Does the fact that we are that we are a monopoly, does that almost have us begin at a deficit in terms of how people perceive us because they don't have a choice? Yeah. That's good. And what that's yeah. a great question. I mean, it, it it could be the case, right? That that because they don't have a choice, they they feel bad right out the gate. Uh, mm-hmm. They feel bad about their utilities. I'm not sure. I mean, that's ultimately an empirical question whether whether that monopoly is what causes people to feel bad. What I what I suspect does give sort of a, a baseline negative um, perception, perhaps, of many water and sewer systems is that the m- most tangible relationship in the consumer's mind or in the, the citizen's mind is the bill, mm-hmm. right? They, they aren't necessarily thinking about what's flowing out right. of the tap or the, the wonderful, um, the wonderful way that, uh, that our sewage treatment plants are carrying away and, and uh, our, our wastewater and, and making it safe. Uh, what they're thinking about is the monthly right. bill. So if your if, if your basic perception is the bill, you know, you're probably not going to have a really great relationship with that organization because all you associated with is this costly yeah. thing. It's sort of like the the perceptions of law enforcement. If your only relationship with law enforcement is getting yeah. arrested or or sure. getting a ticket, you're probably not going to feel great about law enforcement. Yeah. Right? That that's why law enforcement agencies work very hard at public yes. outreach to to try to connect people at a level that's not. Can we say that one more time? Because (laughs) I need everyone in utilities to understand that the public outreach and education that they do in that law enforcement, y'all need to be doing that too. Why aren't you doing that? You know, and when I worked in the city, I used to work at, we partnered with them and on a lot of different outreach programs. And it just, no one could understand why I'm doing this, but they could totally understand why the police are doing this. And I'm like, sure. What's the difference? <laughs> well, and look, there are real costs to the public. I, you know, this is tipping my hand a little bit about a, a book project that I've been working on, but, but part of the reason you need to brand for a natural monopoly in the water sector is that if people don't trust yeah. what's coming out of the tap, they're going to turn to the commercial water alternative, mm-hmm. the bottled water, the kiosk water, those commercial services that deliver water to your home. Those are wildly more expensive. Mm -hmm. We know from the public health research literature that people will, who don't trust their tap water will tend to substitute with sugary beverages or alcohol or very, very, very expensive bottled water, uh, which has which all of, of which have either negative health consequences or negative economic consequences. And by the way, these things hit low-income households mm, the hardest. Yeah. So <clears throat> investing in trust in your water utility is actually good for mm-hmm. the public health. And there's objectively speaking, even if we didn't have to worry about rate increases, it's important to get people to drink their tap water uh, and to maintain high tap water quality because it's going to make them healthier and more mm-hmm. prosperous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you, that's kind of a good segue to, um, cause you had mentioned in that article about branding, you also mentioned, uh, the perceptions that can be based on political, like, um, political background or ideologies and how those can influence the perceptions that people have of your brand based on how they perceive where you fall on that scale as well, um, which kind of tied into the next article that that we read, which I'm going to let Ariane uh, talk about. 
that one. So this article talked about how government agencies are inexorably political, meaning the political values of our customers are definitely going to affect their attitudes about our utilities. This is a great segue into your research about the messaging about rate increases. Will you unpack for us what you learned and then we'll cover political ties you saw in this study as well? Yeah, definitely. So Stephanie and, and Ariane, let me let me share with you a deep, Ooh. deep secret. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats don't necessarily think the same way about public oh, policy. Oh wow, I had no idea. Mm. They have different mm, attitudes okay. uh, oh, on average. Really? Yeah, they mm. really do, and, and sometimes they have different preferences <laughs> over things. It, it's uh, you know we we might want to think about water and sewer systems as being nonpartisan or non-ideological, mm-hmm. right? That, that there's no, there's no re- Republican or Democratic way to treat wastewater. Right. Like there's, there's, there's no, there's no uh, ideology of, of water pressure in, in a pipe. But the reality is like most things in America today, people see things through red or yeah. blue lenses, uh, depending on, on their partisan affiliation. When you're, you're trained in political science, you sort of, in the United States, you sort of expect to see partisanship everywhere. And we're rarely disappointed. Uh, when we think about that branding paper that, that we were talking about a little bit earlier, we saw there were some agencies that had similar brand effects for Republicans and Democrats. Democrats and Republicans both thought about the Department of Energy, the USDA, in roughly similar ways. Uh, they, they, they both were felt positively about those agencies. When we asked questions about their attitudes toward water policy, we asked questions about the US EPA, Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Agency, and we also asked questions about the uh, US Army Corps of Engineers. And we found different responses uh, with, with uh, the Corps of Engineers. Republicans and Democrats, somewhat surprisingly, both felt pretty good about the EPA, mm-hmm. but the US Army Corps of Engineers got a very positive brand value from Republicans and a negative brand value from Democrats. That's a little surprising at first, except when you step back and think about it for three seconds, it's just like everything else in America. People see things through their partisan filters. And it turns out Democrats don't feel really good about the Army, apparently, uh, on average. And so they're going to say, oh, the Army Corps of Engineers, they're Uh bad, right, relative to other agencies. So what what does that tell us? Well, it, it means that we in the water sector may not think of our organizations as particularly mm-hmm. partisan, but we need to be realistic about the fact that that's how people perceive right. things, right? That, that, that most customers are going to perceive any public policy issue, whether it's rates, whether it's construction of a new treatment facility, whether it's, a, whether it's adoption of a new regulatory regime. They're going to see all of that through the lens of partisanship. Mm. Uh, and we, we found that in, in the branding paper, and we found that in this, uh, this other study that, that I think we're going to talk about next. Yeah, that's what. Uh, so the second one was um, about framing or messaging or whichever, whichever way that you talk about it, but issue framing and public willingness <laughs> to pay water and sewer rate increases. It was the official title of the, of the research paper or of the working paper. You said it's, it's in the works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Under I review right now, not, not yet yes. published. So this love- is behind the scenes right now. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like all of these um, papers have validated everything Stephanie's been saying for the past, I mean, we, but you know, 
Stephanie mostly. Um, especially when, hold on, there was something that was popping in my head and I was like, oh my God. Okay, it may, it may come back to me. Well, let me jump in on that though. Look, because this is so important, right? This is why yes. you need science. I can tell us, I can tell a policymaker, hey, look, you, or, or a public manager, a manager of a water system, hey, you got to be sensitive to the partisanship in your community. They might look at me like I'm yeah. crazy and say, wait, it's, it's freaking yeah. water. Why do, we, why do we care about Democrat, Republican? None of that matters. It's water. You can tell them, hey, I think it really matters a lot. It's different than to be able to point at the data it and says, say, no, the data yes, demonstrates. Yes. I love that. Like, that part of that whole matter. audience, audience, audience. That's what I was going to say, Stephanie, is, you know, she's always preaching audience, audience, audience. And, mm. and it goes beyond just knowing your demographics of your of your city but are they more blue or are they more red and are we going to reframe our messaging to fit that so they can understand it and not just immediately you know kind of black out when you give them some some flyer that may <laughs> be perceived more blue you know instead of something that they actually want to read yeah mm. at the end of the day effective communication is really just about being deeply, deeply committed to having empathy for who you're trying to communicate to and doing everything that you can to understand them better than you understand yourself, your friends, your spouse, because that's who you're trying to get this message to. And that's the story that you're trying to tell to your point to influence whatever kind of change or action it is that you're looking for them to take. So the more the more ways that we can pair these two worlds together to help people yeah. understand that and then to have the data and the facts to back that up, the better. Mm-hmm. But um, you had some really amazing uh, outcomes that came that are coming from this paper that it is soon to be released. Uh, so talk to us about your super secret embedding that you did to get some of the data for this for this research. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know how secret it was, but uh, yeah, I, I want to, first of all, I want to thank the U.S. Water Alliance yes. for their cooperation in mm. this study. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the U.S. Water Alliance is an advocacy organization. They've been around for a number of years, and since 2015, every year they run a national public opinion survey called the Value of Water Survey. And each year, they've asked a question, among other things that they ask, they ask a question about people's willingness to pay for a rate increase. And historically, when they've asked this question, they've framed it in terms of a number of benefits that water and sewer systems provide, a cleaner environment, a healthier tap water, um, more resilience, whatever. They, they have a whole sort of list of, of questions, or excuse me, of features of a water system. And then they ask their respondents, would you be willing to pay a modest rate increase to ensure those things? Well, this year in the 2021 edition, I worked with folks at the U.S. Water Alliance to embed an experiment into this question, where instead of listing off several benefits Mm -hmm. that a water rate increase would pay for, we only gave them one benefit. So every respondent to the survey was randomly selected into one of four treatments. We we uh, instead of listing all of those benefits, we would we would give only one of the treatments. I want to make sure I get tell say exactly what they are right. Um, one of them was uh, reduced pollution. Another was safer drinking water. Another was better tasting drinking water, and the last one was access and affordability. Right? Would you pay for a, a rate increase to ensure that everyone in your community had access to affordable water? 
So we only gave the, each of these the respondents one of these benefits and then asked if they would be willing to support a modest rate increase. Well, it turns out that one of those benefits was significantly stronger than the others, and it wasn't even close. Uh, on average, you got about 50, somewhere, you know, somewhere around 55% of 50 to 55% of participants would agree to pay the modest rate increases for three of the four uh, treatments. But one group got significantly higher, and that was safer drinking water treatment. In fact, it's the only one that seemed to be significantly stronger than the others, and it's the only one that aligned with the previous year's findings. So that suggests that the strong support we saw in previous year's value of water surveys were all about drinking water health and safety. So it's that, that safer, healthier drinking water framing that really got most people to agree to support a rating. So I'm going to ask, uh, I had this written down for the branding paper, but as we were talking, I didn't have a way to thread it in, but this kind of connects the two because it sounds like from both of those, you're saying that again, going back to the cell phone metaphor, I don't need to know how my cell phone works to know which brand I like. Uh, and then here it's kind of saying, sure, all of these other benefits are great, but I'm really care most about this end product of having this safe, clean drinking water. So in terms of what utilities need to be telling their customers, does the core focus just need to be on that message itself of this is what we do, this? Yeah, well, certainly that's the implication of this one study. Now, I want to be really clear with a couple of caveats here. There are other benefits sure, to water and sewer systems sure. that we didn't we didn't try. Like we didn't ask about economic prosperity, which we know is is an important benefit. We you know we didn't talk about uh, source water mm -hmm. protection, other other kinds of things that are important. But yeah, the, based on the four things that we did look at, one it, it's a no brainer. One of them is far and away more important, and that's that that safer, healthier mm -hmm. tap water, drinking water. Now that's not to say other things aren't important, but one of the messages that you get uh, in or not messages, one of the lessons that we know from research on branding in the business economics world, research on on messaging in the political communications world, is you got to keep the yeah. message simple. Right. So rather than telling your, you know, the public, the customers that look at these 19 great things that we do for your community. No. Yeah. One thing. And the results of this study strongly suggest that that one thing should be yeah. health. It's health, healthy, safety, safe drinking water. That's what we do. That's the yeah. message. And that was when I was reading that, um, I saw one of the, the treatments, I think is the word you used or maybe I said the wrong word, but, um, one of the four was pollution prevention or something like that. Yeah. And so coming right. from like stormwater background initially, um, I thought, oh my gosh, like, are we, did we miss the ball? Like, should we have been focusing on it? Doesn't like, yes, pollution is like the problem, but like the ultimate is we want safe, clean drinking water. You know, so I started thinking about all these times where I've made pollution, like the why, why do you need to pick this trash up out of the creek? It's, you need to get the pollution out for the wildlife and for this and that. And yes, that's all important, but ultimately it's this safe, clean drinking water or yeah. safe, clean water. Right. Right. And so there's, this gets back to, so we got to make, make sure we know what we're doing here, right? Like we, 
of course, pollution is important. And and as a a manager of a water system, we should care a lot about pollution. But for public messaging, yeah, what the public cares about when it comes to rate increases is, are you making my tap water safe? Are you ensuring the safety and the health of my tap water and and, and in my community and for my family? That's what motivates people to agree for to a rate increase, according to Mm. this study. And it's not. I want all the cities to do the the A B testing and see which message works for them. Yeah, I think it's it's a hard truth to hear as a communicator, educator, when you're trying to constantly. You feel like there's so many messages that you need to that you need to get out there, Mm -hmm. and. But, you know, what I want to say is that before all of you scrap your content calendars for (laughs) (laughs) for the rest of the year, that it's really um, that there's a time and a place for that. Just Mm -hmm. uh, just as Manny said, and those things should exist uh, in places where they're most relevant. But that the key that it's so important for us to remember what the people that we're talking to, what matters to them most and to tie the work to that end goal that mm-hmm. everything that we do, the reason that we exist is so that people have access to that. And uh, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to depress every, all the no. communicators and educators listening, um, <laughs> that Sorry, there's, guys. there's still a time and a place for all of that. But I think it's really important for us to hear because that is when you are so close to your work. And if you've been doing that work for any given amount of time, it is going to be hard to see Mm -hmm. that and to remember that. And it's going to be, it is really hard and is a really generous act of empathy to be able to remember what it was like before you knew what, you know, so it's okay. Don't scrap those content. Well, we do have, you know, if if you want to take a little comfort (laughs) behind the one water principle is that Mm -hmm. look, all water is recycled water. Right. And you can tell yourself, yeah, cleaning the litter out of the stream, uh, preventing the, the sewage overflow, uh, stopping that industrial pollution, that confined animal feedlot operation, that dumping water into, into the streams. All of that does eventually tie back yeah. to drinking mm-hmm. water. And so if what's going to get the public, what's going to evoke public attention, what's going to get the public to support these investments is mm-hmm. drinking water, then you're not, it's not like you're no, selling right. out, right? It's not like you're, you're lying. Um, or, or, or not emphasizing the important things. It's, it's simply the thing that's going to evoke people's mm. response. Just like that, that Android and iPhone competition is, you know, there's, there could be lots of technical features about those cell phones that matter an awful lot to app developers. But most consumers don't care about those things. So the advertisement's going to target the things that they think consumers yeah. care about. So let's 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 meet people where they are that way. And and if, if the point is to to try to get them to support these organizations, mm-hmm. health and safety, that's that's what's getting that's what's mm-hmm. moving the needle yeah. here. And I want to tie us back to the partisanship yeah. for a second, since we were talking yeah. about that earlier. One of the really, really interesting findings here um is the is the effects of partisanship on support for uh for rate increases and the effects of brand, uh, not branding, the effect of framing on partisanship, on support mm-hmm. for rate increases. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Not surprisingly, perhaps, on average, Democrats were much more supportive of rate increases than Republicans. And we measured partisanship on this 
standard seven-point scale that's been used in public opinion research for decades. As we find, perhaps not surprisingly, people who identify strongly Democrat are much more likely to support a rate increase than people who uh, are independents or uh, strongly Republicans. Strong, Strong Republican identifiers have the least support for rate increases. But when we introduced these mm-hmm. different treatments, uh, these different frames, when we started saying to Democrats and Republicans, okay, what, what do you think about, um, would you support it for pollution reduction? What do you support it for affordability? Would you support it for health mm-hmm. and safety? Well, it turns out that the health and safety framing has a much stronger effect on Republicans than it has on Democrats. Independents and Republicans responded very strongly mm-hmm. to the health and safety mm-hmm. treatment. Now that let me spend just a second interpreting what exactly that means. It's not to say that Democrats don't right. care about health and safety. It's rather that Democrats are already predisposed to support yeah. the rate increase. So in some sense, telling the, the Democrats that, that, that uh, telling a, a strong Democrat that, uh, that, that the rate increase is going to help their health and safety is sort of preaching yeah. to the Duh. choir. Yeah. Yeah. But if somebody who's somebody who's an independent, someone who's a, a Republican or a very strong Republican is going to, uh, you know, in, impulsively be opposed to the rate increase until you explain, hey, no, um, this is going to help your uh, health. It's going to make your mm-hmm. drinking water safer. Now that's going to make that Republican or that independent think a little bit differently about the rate increase. So that, that's that's why we we say it has a stronger effect on on Republicans and independents. Yeah, that was really interesting to hear yeah. as well. Um, I don't know that I. Well, the way that you that you break it down and explain the explain the difference was was helpful too because I just. I wouldn't, I don't know that I, I mean, when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, but I don't know that I would have just thought of that <laughs> or, or realized that from, uh, from the results, I guess. So it was really, it was interesting to hear you say that and who you're, who you were saying we should target was not who I generally think should, would be the most effective target, but turns out they are. So Republican oh. women start messaging to them. Yeah. Well, that's- <laughs> That's that's the other one that we haven't yeah. talked about yet is that women responded more strongly to that framing than men did. Yeah. Men responded positively to mm-hmm. it as well, to to the health and safety framing, but the, the effect was much stronger for women. The effect on on men was about a six percent increase in support for rating for for a rate increase, but for women it went up by like fourteen yeah. percent. So th- that effect is very strong for women. Um, so yeah, if if I had to give the shorthand. Applied results here is that your message to uh, should be about health and safety of tap water, and you should push that message as hard as you can at Republican mm. women. Love it. Also, independents, I suppose, independent mm-hmm. and Republican. Women. Also, validating because that has been our target audience for several different uh, several different jobs that we've done. Is oh, mm-hmm. this is the message that you're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. Here's who you should be talking to. <laughs> Yeah. Well, now you've got I the love data. It. Now you have all the data. Yes. And it's not just that I say that the world is round. I've got a satellite. <laughs> uh-huh. <photo. laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to continue on this smorgasbord thread here that we're on. And we've been talking a lot about how politics is so much intertwined into the way that we communicate with people. Then I had just on the nose been thinking about and uh the my tie in here and this 
this article on, on class, race, ethnicity, and injustice in the Safe Drinking Water Act compliance was uh, a really powerful read. It was, there are some hard truths in there that you know of, but to see it in black and white in text like that mm-hmm. uh, is just, it cha- it's just different. Um, and in there was, was the thread that people who do have more, that are affluent and do have more political power can advocate for themselves and better and more effectively in, in where they're at, which is incredibly important to the results that came out of this based on the influence of, or the, the impacts of socio, your socioeconomic status and what that meant to the water quality that you were going to have in where you live. And I wanted to, I wanted to end on this because I just, maybe you don't know, maybe we've said it before, but we also appreciate Manny for his, his boldness. Mm -hmm. And he says what needs to be said, even if I'm sure you have to know that some of the things you say are going to be like a gut punch, but it's like a loving gut punch. So I think people are able to, (laughs) it's, it's a hard truth. Um, I wanted to end with this quote that was in the conclusion that stated the substantive results of our analysis carry disturbing implications for public health in poor communities where members of racial and ethnic minorities face greater risk of unsafe drinking water. Again, hard truth. We all know it, but again, just not easy to hear ever. Just pause to let everyone listening, let that sink in for a moment. And I, we started off this conversation with the quote about science and storytelling. I want to kind of end within that thread to within the findings from this research. You state science informs sound decision-making, storytelling inspires change. You're obviously a storyteller in your own right. You write amazing blogs. You're able mm-hmm. to distill this data into, um, thread it into a story that's ple- pleasing to read. But in this example I've given, you've got the facts, the science, the research, we're the storytellers. How do we bridge this gap in our industry that feels oftentimes like the Grand Canyon? Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of people suffering out there right now that are depending on us to make things better. So I want to know with the research you've done in mind too, what does success look like to you? Yeah. Big question. Um, I'm talk about this study specifically. It's a circle back around to the answer. What does that yes, look like? You know what? Let me okay. preview the answer. The answer is success looks like when I replicate this analysis in 10 years, I yes. find nothing. Agreed. Mm. Okay. Right. That I, I don't find a correlation between race class, ethnicity, and so, and, and safe drinking water act compliance, right? If, if, and that, and hopefully that's not because everybody's got bad compliance now. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully it's because everybody's got great compliance. Um, look, you know, Stephanie, you said something in in the windup to that question, which was that, uh, that you do wind up that came before the pitch, uh, was you said something like, we all know it. But the thing is, we didn't all know it. If you had talked to folks five, ten years ago, yeah, I think in the environmental justice activist community and in certain poor parts of the country, 
with large, high minority, uh, non-white populations, yeah, they might have told you this story. And they might have pointed at particular communities and said, hey, look, look this, this community's poor, predominantly non-white. They've got really terrible drinking water. But I think if you had gone to water sector industry leaders, they would not necessarily have yeah, agreed with you. Right. They would say, well, well, wait, wait, wait a second, Stephanie. We yeah. don't know that. We don't know that. If there are any systemic problems, it's because they're small systems or they're maybe they're poor communities. But we're not a. There's no racial correlation there. It, maybe this poverty is is a problem. But they would have denied. In fact, I'm not saying this hypothetically. I spoke with people who denied. Oh no, look, we don't have a race problem. We don't have an ethnicity problem in the water sector. And so it's only by demonstrating this stuff empirically that you can bring folks around and say, no, look, I've got the evidence for you. I can tell you a story about the South Rio Grande Valley. I can tell you a story about uh, tribal systems in the United States, which, by the way, are some of the worst in the country. 19 times more likely not to have access to drinking water and sanitation. 19 times more likely. Well. And where they have it, I can tell. Oh, we will. Oh, yes. oh, we are. Because oh. I published, I published two different studies oh, on tribal uh, water and sewer yeah. compliance as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can tell you about tribes. I can tell you about the the Flints mm-hmm. and, and the the Newarks and the Baltimores of the world. But until I demonstrate that across thousands of systems that this correlation exists, it's easy to discount those things mm-hmm. as one off. The story is not sufficient. To, to guide the policy and management decisions. So you've got to have the data to help you tell the story. Uh, and, and one of the things I find is so important about this research that we did, and I want to make sure we give credit. Uh, my co-author on this work was David Switzer at the University of Missouri. Uh, he and I worked very closely on this research for a long time. One of the things that's so important is that there's a kind of interaction term, which is a a statistical uh, version of what folks might call intersectionality. It's not just being non-white. It's not just being poor. It's being poor and non-white that seems to matter here. If you look at just a correlation between Safe Drink Water Act compliance and, say, a community's percent Black population or percent Hispanic population, you're not going to find much. There's very little correlation there. If you look at just socioeconomic indicators, you might find a little bit of a correlation, but it's not a very strong correlation. When you look at all of these things in combination, it pops, right? You can really see it's the communities that are predominantly poor and predominantly non-white that have significantly higher probabilities of violating the Safe Drinking Water Act. So putting that in front of people has really changed the conversation. Ten years ago, I had to try to convince people that environmental justice was a drinking water issue. I don't have to make Mm -hmm, that case anymore. And, you know, I had more than one people, more than one person, excuse me, tell me they were astonished that Journal AWWA ran that article. Uh, And, you know, I credit to the editorial staff at AWWA. They didn't hesitate. Um, they wow. did, didn't weren't ideologically opposed to this finding. They thought it was important, and they ran yeah. with it. Um, and I and I think that study has changed the industry's conversations because now it's not just some lonely crank in right. one utility saying, "Hey, we got a race yeah. problem." No, the data are there, and they yes. and they they scream out in color exactly what 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 the conditions are across the country. So, what does success look like? We raise uh, this issue. 
and it changes the way that state and federal regulators work. It changes the way that uh, utilities mm-hmm. operate. And when we replicate the study in 10 years, the, the correlation is oh, gone. Nice. Yeah. So he has all this data to back that up, Stephanie. Yes. <laughs> I love yes. It. <laughs> uh, as you were talking, I was getting so fired up. I wanted to stand up, but my, d- mm-hmm. my standing desk makes a noise and I didn't want that to, to break the flow. But, um, so go back to the beginning of your, what success looks like in terms of say that, say that part again, if you remember what you said. <laughs> okay. I'll try. Uh, we'll know we're successful. If we replicate this analysis yeah. in 10 years and we don't find any correlation at all between race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and drinking water quality. Do you think there's a correlation between the story, this story, the story that comes out of this data and how we're we're sharing that, we're talking about it? I mean, obviously we've come a long way because now people recognize environmental justice and social justice as a water issue, a water problem, but we still got a long way to go. So do you think, Sure. what do you think the disconnect is there? Cause to me, it feels like a disconnect between the science and the story going back to your whole opening quote or from your website Mm -hmm. is, do you agree with that? Or do you think, yeah, how do, how do we get to where you want to be faster? How can we help? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I think the stories are out there. They've been out there. Now the stories have been bolstered by by the data. Um, look, it shouldn't surprise you uh, as a researcher. What I'm going to want is, is more data yeah. and better metrics. One of the things that we need to do is, is develop good, sound metrics to capture inequalities in water quality, drinking water quality, regulatory compliance, regulatory mm-hmm. enforcement. And we need to look at those things when we make funding decisions, when we make regulatory enforcement decisions, when we make rules. I'm encouraged that under the Biden administration, there's certainly been a lot of talk about introducing environmental justice into some of the decision-making at EPA, some of the other federal agencies. But talk doesn't turn into policy without some kind of way to measure success mm-hmm. and failure. Uh, and, and so what we need to do is, is continue to measure rigorously the kinds of disparities and inequalities out there. And as I said, we'll, we'll know we're successful when, when I replicate this analysis and I don't mm-hmm. find anything. Like that, in, that some sense, in that sense, we're, we're sort of doing something weird for scientists, which is we're rooting for the null hypothesis. <laughs> we really want nothing to be happening here. Uh, in the data. Um, So how can you connect? I don't know. I mean, I I think getting folks to connect that story that they care Mm -hmm. about a lot to these kind of boring, dry metrics that I'm trying to work with here, um, that matters a lot. I mean, and and what happens in the the minutia of rulemaking matters a lot. Uh, So so getting folks to care about that stuff. We all people want easy answers. Um, and these are complicated problems. Uh, and we've got tens of thousands of water systems in the country. We've got 50 states plus dozens of territorial and tribal agencies working on this on this problem. Um, you know, it, it's it's going to yeah. be hard. 
Well, I definitely wasn't looking for you to give me an easy answer. I the do communication bullet. in the water. Okay, good, because I ain't got none. Bullet, yeah. I do communication in the water sector. There ain't no such thing as an easy answer. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I get it. Um, I guess one last thing I wanted to I wanted to ask if you have an answer to it, it before I volley over to Ariane is so this paper drew the correlation between the socio socioeconomic status race, ethnicity, all of these things together. Um, and you said to your, to your point, when you said that you were first, when you, this first came out and you were telling people about this, they were like, Oh, well, that's cause that's a small system or cause of X, Y, Z, ABC, all these reasons that they threw out at you. Do you have a reason now to throw back? Actually, you know, why we see these yeah. correlations? Yeah, demonstrating the correlation is a lot easier than explaining why it exists. We have some good reasons, though. When we analyze political and economic institutions in the United States, we have some good reasons to suspect certain causes here. We know that people who are lower socioeconomic status, that's low education, low income, low wealth, tend to participate less in politics. They don't go to turn out to vote as often. They don't write their members of Congress. They don't participate in public meetings at the same rate as middle class and more affluent uh, and well-educated populations. We also find something similar in uh, similar disparities in race and especially in ethnic terms. Uh, Hispanic folks participate at much lower levels in politics compared to non-Hispanic individuals. So, you know, the great thing about democracy is that democratic governments, small d, are responsive to the public. Uh, The bad thing about democratic governments, small d, is that they're responsive to the public, which means that they're not responsive to the public that doesn't participate. So I think we have here a story of politics and and governments responding to the demands of the public. And if the public isn't engaged, it's just it's easier for politicians to ignore those those populations. That's one part of the story. That's a Mm, bad part. Let me tell you the worst. I thought you were going to end on a high note. (laughs) No, 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 no. This is this is the worst part. And then I'll end on a high note. The, the worst part is that there is, I think, evidence of systemic regulatory neglect of poor and non-white communities. There are places in the United States that simply perennially violate the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act dozens of times every year, year after year after year. And they're simply allowed to function or dysfunction, often under the... Uh, heading of affordability, that there's this concern that, well, these small communities, especially maybe some of these more impoverished communities, they can't afford. It's not a very, if you're not on the visual here, yeah, it's air quotes. Quotes here. Uh, they can't afford high quality systems. They can't afford high quality wastewater and drinking water systems. So there's this, there's this idea that, well, if these communities don't have enough resources, they're just going to have to live with the fact that they've got poor water quality. 
it is in some sense, as, as perhaps President Bush 43 would put it, the toxic bigotry of low expectations. Mm. We don't expect that communities like this can comply with the Safe Drinking Water Act. So we're just going to go ahead and let them violate. That is terrible. Mm. right? That, that should be unacceptable mm-hmm. to us. And the idea that we're going to loosen regulations or simply allow communities to fail year after year after year because some regulator believes that they can't afford mm-hmm. to comply, that, 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 that should mm-hmm. be unacceptable to us. Mm. Okay, Lon, well, let me tell you the Thank happy God. story. Okay. There's, there's a, a growing body of, of evidence, uh, in, especially in, in political science, to demonstrate that regulators and governments are responsive to communities that do participate. So if we can organize uh, the populations that are uh, suffering from poor drinking water or or surface water quality or groundwater quality, governments will respond. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the leading theories for why we see so much greater disparity for Hispanics in the United States compared to Blacks in the United States is that there's a much stronger tradition of Black political Mm -hmm. organizing, especially around environmental justice. Mm -hmm. You know, community organizers in in the African-American communities across the country have been organizing around environmental justice for 30 years now, maybe more. Uh, That tradition doesn't exist for some other ethnic uh, minority groups and racial minority groups. But the the black experience suggests that in places where you can organize, governments will respond and regulators will respond effectively. Uh, You know, look, look no further than Newark. They've, they're putting the finishing touches on replacing all the lead service lines in that state. Uh, when I testified before the, the New Jersey legislature a few years ago, people were tearing their hair out and, and claiming that that was impossible, mm. that it would be too costly and, and it would take too much time. Here we are, I think, less than four years later, and they're removing the last lead service lines. Why? Because the community they're organized, and that's largely an African-American community uh, organizing to, to, to get something done nice. and it happened. So that's the happy story. When, when you mobilize these communities, the great thing about democracy kicks in that the governments will reply and will respond. Good. Yes. We need to pair this. So again, you don't even know this. You're putting data to episode 102 with May Stevens, who works in politics. Yeah, exactly. Talked about getting more active and especially on a local level, because that's where it directly influences your daily life the most. So now everyone, you can pair 102 with 108 and you've got just this plethora of talking points. So (laughs) great. I'm going to, Ariane, I'm going to let you. Sure. So um, I'm going to use an analogy to describe what I think is this Manny Rogue connection I see in the future. And this may sound a little controversial to some, but um, that Manny is to Rogue as Dr. Oz is to Oprah. And I say controversial because some people say Dr. Oz is like junk science sometimes. Well, whoever his reg- her but- regularly returning guest is sorry but but I wanted to just point out that this is not junk science at all but just the regularity of it and the um you know they have this regular conversation that they're you know it's like a never-ending and I love it um but anyways we just want you to be a regular on this show um if it's not too much to ask um but 
there's just so much to unpack with you, with everything that you're doing. Um, my favorite thing about you, Manny, is that you're not just throwing data at us. You're not just giving me journal articles. You're breaking these down into blogs that captivate my attention span <laughs> and don't use incredibly big scientific words that I'm just like, inexorably, um, inexorably substantive. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I appreciate that you tell the whole, you go from beginning to end, you do the data and you also tell this full story and I love it. Um, all that. Well, that's very kind of you. It's very, and it's very much part of our mission at the La Follette School at the University of Wisconsin. It's, it's trying to take the scientific research we do and use it to make the world yeah, a better well, place. Well, you're doing it. I appreciate that. Um, so obviously we're going to be regrouping. We'll be chatting about you have an upcoming book that mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear about. Um, before we jump into this next little bit of questions, re- lightning round. Could More you give us forward. Yeah. Could you give us um, a little book jacket teaser? Okay. Sure. So this is another work that's still under review. Hopefully we'll, we'll have great news and I'll be able to tell you all about a publisher and, mm-hmm. and publication date very soon. Uh, it's a book called The Prophets of Distrust. And I have two co-authors, David Switzer again at the University of Missouri, who I mentioned earlier, and then uh, Samantha Zolke at the University of Iowa. So this is a project with a very strong upper Midwestern mm-hmm. sort of uh, accent. Nice. The Province of Distrust is about the rise of the commercial water industry in the United States and the simultaneous decline in public trust in government generally, in institutions generally, but then in tap water mm-hmm. specifically. We use drinking water as a point of departure to talk about the relationship between basic services and Americans' trust in institutions. That's that's the point of the book, uh, and it is a lot of it, as you can probably guess, is a little bit yeah. dismal. Sure, right? because we we want to argue that this meteoric growth in the bottled water industry is really um, a at some level about people's distrust yeah. in tap water and by extension, distrust in local government, distrust in state regulators, distrust in the federal government, distrust of institutions more generally. The happy thing is that we think that that sort of vicious cycle of distrust that sets in can be reversed and turned virtuous, that people who do come to trust their tap water can also come to trust the organizations and the institutions that provide it. So we think that that tap water has something to tell us much more deeply uh, about our society and mm-hmm. the way that our, our politics and, and government are organized. Well, I feel that trust is a key metric of communication. So I'm thrilled to read this. I was thrilled to see your presentation at UMC this year where you gave a sneak preview. So can't wait to, to read the rest. Um, but I am, we're going to hop into, uh, we changed up the endings of our episodes. This is very Brene Brown inspired and we're going to do, this is lightning round. So gut reaction, don't overthink it. Just what comes to your head, name a moment you felt the most authentically you. Okay. You mentioned UMC this past summer. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about that. (laughs) Um, yeah, I loved giving that Mm. talk. 
Nice. Because that presentation I gave at UMC about trust in drinking water and trust in institutions captures so much about uh, the core of the work that I've been doing for 25 years. And so that felt great. And it felt authentically me because I feel like this is really what I have to offer the world is an opportunity uh, to, to sort of speak this mm-hmm. difficult truth. I like to think of it not so much as a gut punch, as more of a uh, an arm oh. around the shoulder and a and a um, telling you how it is uh, moment to to people who I, I care about it and respect sure. a great deal, and that's that's the leaders who run uh, the water and sewer systems yeah. of this country. So I, I'm there. I'm there not to condemn yeah. them. I'm there to tell them what's at stake and and how how we can mm-hmm. all do better. I love it. It's a loving gut punch. Yeah. Uh, you really are onto this gut punch thing. <laughs> um, without without saying a picture of my like of yourself, boldness looks like, and you can't say like you can't hold up Manny because we already said that earlier. Okay, yeah, but for What's you, that? boldness looks like fill in the blank. Picking up on keeping with the themes of, of communication, I'd say boldness looks like Northeast Ohio. Oh, yeah. Yes, my yes. favorite answer. There are so They're many so people who believe that running this business is very, very yes. serious, and we must never pretend that anything we do is the least yeah, bit exactly. fun. That that to be professional is to be yes. dour. Right? These people put a lie to it. I don't oh, know. John Gonzalez, the most, John Gonzalez, oh, and yeah, his yes. team. It, yeah. It's one of the most brilliant things I've ever it is. seen. Agreed. And uh, at its best, it's both funny and very educational. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the tens, you know, the the, the ten thousand followers, or wherever, however mm-hmm. many he's got, that's bold, right? Because this is this is a, a, a an industry, a sector that that's very, very, very conservative, yes. small C, right? Like change averse, risk averse. The idea of doing social media at all is going to strike a lot of people as weird. And and this is an account that isn't just doing it. It's, it's winning it. at, at, at right, and not just for utilities. Twitter, I'm talking about in Twitter general, generally. Theory. I don't know. I, yeah, there, yeah I, there can't be a half a dozen accounts. Yeah, that no. are there. Uh, so I'd, I'd say that's. Oh, a I agree. That's like. a great Agreed. answer. Mm-hmm. This is another fill in the blank for you. I stay curious by spending time with the men and women who run the water sector. And I mean, that's, that's really not just a pandering. I feel like you would have a lot of questions to every single one of them. (laughs) I do. And I, I feel like I get the early warning systems about everything because I'll go to these water conferences, ACE and UMC mostly. And I'll just have these casual conversations with people about what's happening in their, in their utilities. Everyone from the operators Mm -hmm. up to the the chief executive officers have interesting perspectives. And I learn about things way before other scholars do. If you're in the thick because, of it. Uh, because I'm, I'm having those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's right. That's right. And, and they, they, have, they have problems and challenges. And I think that's an interesting research mm-hmm. question. You know, so uh, we have a conversation. I don't remember when the three of us first met a few years ago, whenever it was. Um, and I started thinking, well, so you're doing all this stuff on, on messaging around water. Well, how would we know whether we're doing this mm-hmm. well or not? Well, you might do something like an experiment. Right. And then that leads down the road yeah. to 
doing scientific research. So that's how I stay so curious. So did that's we inspire your um, U.S. alliance into the thick of it? You know, <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to take, I'm going to be like, yeah, we, we inspired Manny a little bit. Um, I, I don't think that's inaccurate. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd say you and the other folks yeah, who are working sure. on water sector. Yeah, comms, totally. Right. Yes. But yeah, no, you, you got that, those ideas rattling around yeah, in the back it. of my brain. And, and then I saw an opportunity with the US water Alliance to, to, to do that. That study. is great. So yeah, that's how I stay curious. Uh, the, the stumble, that's not a problem. That's, not a, that's yeah. not a thing that I would have stumbled across otherwise. Mm. Right. If I wasn't spending time with people who work in the water sector, it would not have occurred to me to run a framing experiment on support. Well, for keep reactors. going. We need all yeah. the data, all the comms, water data, all of it. Do for it any people. of you who watch this, the video version of this, you will see that my jaw dropped in excitement fangirl moment when he said that we were inspiration <laughs> for that. Yes. So, so excited. <laughs> um, what's something you're deeply grateful for? Now more than ever, I am deeply grateful for mm-hmm. good health. Yes. Um, last year, for folks who read my blog know, last year I lost my brother to mm. cancer. Uh, the The world has lost way too many people to COVID yes. over the past year. I suffered a, a pretty significant injury last winter that I'm mostly recovered from now, but it gave me a new understanding about and, and sympathy for people who deal with mm-hmm. chronic pain. Um, health is mm-hmm. so important and it's something that I, I cherish more and more. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's also about <laughs> aging, yes. uh, but, Same. but I, but I, I, you know, I'm grateful for health and tying us back to the themes of the, of the podcast. Apparently so do independent Republican <laughs> women voters. <laughs> oh, well, I got one last question for you. Thanks for answering those, those new ones. Those are all based on our core values. So we wanted to intertwine those with uh, our, the conversations we had with our guests. But this last question, I changed up the first one on you, but this one is the same one that we asked you last time. So interesting to see if we go look back, if your answer has changed. At oh, all. no, I don't, no, I don't want I you to remember time. what you said. No, you don't have to give me a you don't have to give me a same, the same answer, but this one is about, um, you know, we, we have heard in our line of work that, oh, I'm just one person. It doesn't matter if I make a change, it's not going to make a difference. I'm just, I'm just me. And we obviously all disagree with that wholeheartedly. So I would say, what is the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? So this is an action for individuals yes. to take. Or this is Whatever like a thing that be. we all need to do together. Okay. Nope, this is. Well, I I don't remember what I said last time, but I'm pretty sure that uh, I think there's a good chance that this is the same okay. answer, which is consolidation. We need fewer water mm. utilities. Interesting. You know, there are 50,000 community water systems in the United States. That equates to something like probably 35 or 40,000 separate organizations. Everything we do in the water sector is harder because of that extreme fragmentation and nothing else we ever do is going to really be sustainable until we get that number down to something more Mm. reasonable. It's an order of magnitude larger than electricity and gas and telecom put together. Mm. A lot of water sector leaders know that in their hearts, getting back to the boldness. A lot of folks are squeamish about saying Mm -hmm. that out loud. I am not. We need fewer water utilities. 
We need fewer water utilities. Okay, what does that mean for an individual? It means don't be afraid of it. There's a lot of people in the world, a friend of mine likes to say, there's a lot of people in this world who would be happy to be on a sinking ship as long as they get to be the captain. And I think there's some of that going on in the water sector. So true. And so some of that means letting go and, and being willing to look at new organizational mm-hmm. models. There's a lot of ways to get after consolidation. There's not one perfect right. way to do it. And the right answer might be different in different places, in different circumstances. Um, but we got, but nothing else we do will ever be really sustainable until we get that number down. Everything we do is harder because we've got tens of thousands of these organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, so that's the thing I'm most passionate about. And that's the thing that I think can change mm. the world. The second you say it, the second you said it, I do think that that was the answer that you gave because it sounded really familiar. Mm-hmm. So I think you're, I nice. think you're on brand. Great you branding. Are, yes. Well, I, I, I give that sermon a lot, yeah. so it, it doesn't I dig surprise. it. Well, I dig that. I dig you uh, having yeah. the courage to go down this journey that I took us on. It was. Very meaningful for me. So I appreciate that and always appreciate the conversations that we get to have with you. So thank you for doing the work that you do, for being bold, for giving us the data we need to be able to tell these stories and get things done and always grateful for the time we get to share with you. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was this was delightful and, and very flattering uh, the way I'll descri- describe me and my work. So, so so thank you and thanks for the work you do. Um, and I'll be be delighted to chat with you more as more research rolls out. Good. We'll hold yep. you to that. We will hold you to that. <laughs> we are so grateful for each and every one of you, all the members of our listening community. The Water in Real Life podcast is a Rogue Water Lab original. It's hosted by the H2 Duo. That's us. Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. It's produced by Rogue Water Lab, 12 Midnight, and Matt Black Sound. Sound design and music by Andre Black and Matt McNeil of Matt Black Sound. For more water in real life, check out our YouTube channel and sign up for our lab notes. You can find both at roguewaterlab.org.